Good morning. This morning we're in the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, Mark eight twenty-seven through 33. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he himself must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. As you may have noticed, those who have been here for the past several weeks, we're jumping ahead in Mark because it's Palm Sunday. Um, but it worked out very well because where we would be would be Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and on, in which King Herod has a very similar conversation to what we just heard Clint read in Mark 8. I'll read it to you briefly. This is Mark six fourteen. King Herod heard of it, of the things Jesus was doing. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So that passage, the passage that Clint just read, both connect very well to Palm Sunday because they're just other examples of people who did not understand who Jesus was. They were close, but just off from understanding who Jesus actually is. So that's why uh, I wanted to jump ahead to chapter 8 because chapter 8 will flow directly into a very good, appropriate passage for Easter Sunday as well. So we're going to, that's what we're doing. In case any of you even wondered, you probably didn't even notice. But now you know. Now, before we begin to look at this passage, I'd really like for us to pray together. So would you pray with me? Father, I want to confess before the congregation and you that the only way we are going to benefit from our time here together is if you will please speak to us through your word. We need you to cut through the distractions and the other concerns and worries that are cycling around in our minds. And we need you to be plain with us and clear with us because often we have a hard time understanding. And I need you to help me serve your people well. Please give me the freedom to speak through the power of the Holy Spirit, your word, in a way that will be nourishing and helpful to your people. That will in no way be distracting. That will in no way point to me or to Doolin's Grove Church or to anything but you and your glory in and through Jesus. Please help us to see and understand who Jesus is this morning. 
Please help us to pick our minds up off of the things of man and set them on the things of God. Please help each and every one of us of every age and gender and situation of life and help each and every one of us receive Jesus, the real, true Jesus, the Christ of the cross, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So during the triumphal entry and the passage that Melanie read to us earlier, the people were very excited about Jesus entering town because they thought he was a savior who would free them from Roman oppression. A very real-time political situation they were in, they thought he was going to save them from that. But they were mistaken. And just a few chapters later in Mark chapter 15... You hear them saying, Pilate says to the crowd, what shall I do with the man you called the king of the Jews? And they cried out and said, crucify him. So their misunderstanding of Jesus took them from saying, savior, savior to kill him, kill him. It's a pretty serious misunderstanding. And then in the passage in Mark 6 that we would have studied, Herod has the same mistake that the people in chapter 8 have. They think that maybe this man is John the Baptist reincarnated or Elijah who, I mean, Elijah who never actually died. He got swept up into heaven. Maybe it's him because some of the prophecies said someone would come who would be like Elijah. Or maybe he's one of the prophets. They knew he was important and they knew he was good and they knew he had religious significance, but they still didn't understand who he was. They thought he was a part of what God was doing to bring an an earthly kingdom to fruition for the Jewish people. They were close, but just off from understanding who he was. And then in verse 29, Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, representing the disciples, I believe, you are the Christ. Now, Peter's correct in terminology. Jesus is the Christ. Christ means literally anointed, anointed one. It's a title, not a last name. He's not Jesus Christ like I'm Matt Broadway. Christ is his title as the anointed one. It was the terminology used for kings when they were anointed to be the king. Only this was the king of kings. So Peter gets it right that he is the Christ, but he still doesn't quite accurately understand who Jesus is. And his misunderstanding leads him in just a few verses to be called Satan by Jesus himself. Can you imagine? One moment you're correctly identifying him as the Christ, representing the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, and in a few breaths, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, calling you Satan. What happened from verse 29 to verse 33? Well, Peter had a slight misunderstanding of who Jesus was. In verse 29, and Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus immediately says, don't tell anyone. And he began to teach them that the son of man, referring to himself as a title that he liked to use of himself, comes from Old Testament stuff. 
He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter understood that he was the Christ, but he didn't understand the cross. He wanted Jesus to be the Christ without the cross. And so he rebuked Jesus. He chided him. And so Jesus had a stern word for him. Get behind me, Satan. See, I think that Peter's mistake remains a very dangerous, satanic misunderstanding of Jesus Christ today among many in the church. So I think when we get to 29... We need to look at this as though Jesus is looking at us right in the eyes, looking at you and you and you and saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because a small shade of misunderstanding can have disastrous results for us. A small shade of misunderstanding can take you from saying, Hosanna, Savior, to crucify him. A small shade of misunderstanding can take you from saying, you're the Christ, to Jesus saying to you, get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? Get behind me, Satan. I don't know any other place in the Bible where Jesus calls somebody Satan other than Satan. I think it comes from back in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 8 through 10. In Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, this is after Jesus has been baptized and he's, uh, he's out in the wilderness. He's preparing to start his public ministry. And Satan is there tempting him. And in verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, in that passage, Satan is saying basically, I don't care if you have all the kingdoms in the world. I'll let you have it all. You can be the king of kings. You can be the Christ. Only do what I want you to do. And in Satan's case, it was bow down and worship me. I think Peter was in league with Satan. I think he was basically saying, you're the Christ and that's awesome. You're going to restore the Jewish kingdom. You're going to get rid of Roman oppression. Only stop with all this talk about suffering and rejection and murder. Stop talking about the cross. You can be the king of kings. You can be the Christ. Only do as I want. I don't think Peter would have said it in such blunt terms, but that's basically where his heart was. He had decided what sort of Christ would be best, and it did not involve a cross. And so he rebuked Jesus. That word rebuke means to chide or to warn. It's it's um, the word on and the word to place value stuck together. So it sort of put him in his place. 
Jesus, the one he just called the Christ. And we laugh and we shake our heads. How silly of Peter to do something like that. But I think we do it a lot. It's so subtle. You know, when we get baptized into the church, we are supposed to be getting baptized into Jesus's world. Where he is the king, he is the Lord, he is the one in charge, he's the one with the vision, he's the one with the mission, and we're baptized into what he's already doing. But often in the American church, we try to baptize Jesus into what we're doing. We try to baptize him into our vision and our mission. We think we know what kind of Christ is best, and we try to rebuke him into that. That's how you get... Uh, the patriotic American Jesus. That's how you get the self-help Jesus. That's how you get the prosperity Jesus. That's how you get the harmonious family Jesus. That's how you get the church growth Jesus. These are things that we are already about. Jesus can't hurt. Come on, Jesus. We're going to march toward this mission. We're going to make it happen. You can be the Christ. But leave the cross out of this. We're going to make America great. We're going to make my family great. We're going to make my finances great. We're going to make my life great. And we don't realize it, but like Peter, we are not setting our minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think this is one reason why many of us have such a hard time reading our Bibles. Because the Bible isn't about what we want it to be about. It's about what God wants it to be about. And so we come to the Bible with our thoughts and our concerns about what should be the priority and what God should care most about. And he's like, he's not addressing it. It's like he has his own priority and his own ideas about what should be talked about. And so we get bored because we're not seeing our exact situation in here. It's plain spoken, but it's not according to our interests. I'm reading this book right now. It's called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. It's really good. And I was reading it last night, and this quote just seemed so appropriate for this sermon. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read this quote to you. He's working through Paul's prayers in the Bible and extracting lessons for our prayer life. And he talks about one in 1 Thessalonians, and he says... This text asks us, when was the last time you prayed this sort of prayer for your family, for your church, for your children? It is a prayer for God's eternal goals to be accomplished at his people. That's what he's referring to. Do we not spend far more energy praying that our children will pass their exams or get a good job or be happy or not stray too far Then we do praying that they may live lives worthy of what it means to be a Christian. Many of us have had the experience of asking a parent, how are your children doing? Only to get an answer like this. Oh, Johnny's doing very well. His career as a research physicist has really taken off. He is the youngest person in his company to have been appointed to the board. And Evelyn is doing very well too. She's into computer programming and is already the head of her section. And how are they doing spiritually? A long pause. I'm afraid they're not really walking with the Lord at the moment. 
But we're hoping they'll come back someday. Of course, the initial response of such parents may be a reflection of nothing more than privacy, a quiet and loyal concern not to disparage any family member. But too often it reflects warped priorities. I have had parents, ostensibly Christian parents, rage at me because they thought I had influenced their bright children to train for ministry, perhaps for missionary service. Others are joyous over their children's material prosperity and not terribly concerned over their children's utter indifference to the God who made them. How will these values appear 30 or 40 billion years from now? From eternity's perspective, what should be the primary things for which we should pray for our children, for ourselves, for our fellow believers? There's often a great contrast between what our mind is set on and what God's mind is set on. And in that disconnect, we need to merge our thinking to God's thinking, not get frustrated and stomp our foot and try to get him to merge his thinking to our thinking. Jesus is always solving problems we don't care about. Have any of you ever been frustrated by that? You have your problem and you are so urgent about it, and it's like he doesn't even care. And he's all solving some problem that you're not even thinking about, you don't even care about. You know, Lillian the other day got a splinter in her thumb. And if you ever had your little girl get a splinter in her thumb, it's a gut-wrenching experience because the only way to get it out is to cause her more pain. It's the only way. And it's not what she wants. She just, just put a Band-Aid on it. And then it won't hit stuff. It won't hurt. Just put a Band-Aid on it. But as her father, I love her, and I have to solve a problem deeper than just the immediate pain of it hitting something. I have to solve the problem of a potential ongoing infection. It's not going to solve itself. So I have to do the bloody extraction of the splinter. And it's traumatic for us all. You know, often we have this splinter in our minds and in our hearts. It seems big. It seems like that's the problem. But God doesn't just address that. He has to do this bloody deep extraction way more than we ask for. Sometimes in areas that we don't even want to deal with. We just want to deal with the surface problem. But he knows better than we do. So we want wholeness for our marriage, but he wants wholeness for our hearts. And maybe he'll use that marital discord and dysfunction to bring about wholeness for our hearts as we learn how to trust Jesus Christ more fully. We want physical healing, but he wants spiritual healing. We want freedom to pursue happiness. He wants for us freedom from uh, slavery to our sins. We want temporary fun. He wants to give us eternal life. We just want a truce between us and him. Let us live our lives. You know, we won't do any of the big sins. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. Let's just have a truce. He wants to come and adopt you as his son. See, Jesus knew that the people needed something a lot deeper than what they thought they needed. Peter just thought they needed a good leader. A political, governmental, military Christ who would just put the nation back together. But Jesus knew that they were broken deep down in their souls and they needed to be made whole. That they were sick with sin and they needed to be healed. 
That they were enslaved to sin. They needed to be freed. That they were spiritually dead. And they needed to be brought to life. That they were guilty and they needed to be made innocent. That they were defiled and they needed to be purified. That they were enemies of God and they needed to become sons. This is why in verse 31, right after... And this is a major turning point in the gospel when Jesus is identified as the Christ by his disciples. This is why he silences them. And immediately in verse 31, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. They knew he was the Christ and that's good. Now they needed to know that he was the Christ of the cross. Because if they didn't understand that he was the Christ of the cross, they would completely misunderstand him. And they would miss everything. He's not the Christ of any earthly throne. He's not the Christ of the Oval Office. He's not the Christ of the gym. He's not the Christ of the budget. He's not the Christ of the dinner table. He's the Christ of the cross. It's not enough to identify Jesus as the Christ. Many people would say, yes, his name is Jesus Christ. Without any understanding of the full depth of what that word means. And the significance of the cross. It's not enough to just know it. It's not enough to just say it, that he is the Christ. You must also embrace his cross and your cross. He taught them about his cross in verse 31 and then one verse later than what Clint read, verse 34, immediately after rebuking Peter, he called the crowd to him him with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When we don't understand the cross and embrace Jesus as the Christ of the cross, we get religion, but not reconciliation with God. We get to pretend to be good, holy people, but we don't get deep down purification from our sins. We get the burdens of trying to look like Christians rather than our brokenness being made whole. We get guilt and shame rather than innocence and peace. So I have two questions for you as we draw to a close. First question, does your Christ require the cross? Does your Christ require the cross? Does your understanding of Jesus explain why he needed to die on the cross? When you speak of your Christ, do you say things like, God takes care of me, and God will provide, and God is good, and church is great? And leave it at that. Or do you say things like from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, Surely he has borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought me peace. 
With his wounds, I am healed. Like a sheep, I have gone astray. I've turned to my own way. And the Lord has laid on him my iniquity. Do you say like Paul says in Romans 5, 6-11, For while I was weak, at the right time Christ died for ungodly me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Since therefore I have now been justified by his blood, much more shall I be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while I was an enemy, I was reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that I am reconciled, shall I be saved by his life. More than that, I also rejoice in God through my Lord Jesus Christ, through whom I have now received reconciliation. Now you may not say it in such biblical cadence, but is that what your heart says when you think of your Christ? Or do you think of a general God who is generally good, a general religion that is generally good, a system of morality, Do you think about all that vague stuff or do you think about Jesus Christ, the Christ of the cross? Does your Christ require the cross? Does your Christianity require the cross? There in verse 34, back in Mark chapter 8, he began to teach. And I think this is what I'm going to preach on next week, Easter Sunday. But he immediately needed to explain to them that if anyone wants to come after him, they need to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow them, follow him. When you think about your Christianity, is it just a matter of going to church and trying to be good? Or does it feel like a cross? Can you say like Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a very important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? I don't want any of us to miss the rich blessings of knowing and receiving and trusting the Christ of the cross. I don't want any of us to miss that because we've instead been worshiping some other Christ of our own imagination. And we're going to have a prayer time now. We don't do this often. Um, You can think of it as an altar call. I'm not going to stand here stubbornly until everybody comes up. But the altar is open to you. Your pew is open to you. We're going to have a time now to pray. And I want you to prayerfully consider if you have and are receiving the Christ of the cross or some other Christ. If there are any satanic substitutes for the Christ of the cross that you need to renounce. If there's any way in which or area in your life in which you need to remove your mind from the things of man and set them on the things of God. there's any brokenness that you need him to make whole any sickness that you need to be healed any 
slavery to sin that you just can't get away from, that you need him to free you from. If you're spiritually dead and need to be enlivened. If you're guilty and you need to be justified, which means to be made innocent. If you're defiled and you need to be purified. If you're an enemy and you need to be adopted as a son. Let's pray about these things. And if you come forward, I'll ask if you'd like for me to pray with you. And you can say yes or no. I'll give you your privacy. Sometimes it's helpful to come forward and pray. It's helpful to get up and move forward and set yourself apart. Consecrate yourself for praying in response to this. But I can't think of any more appropriate way to begin our Easter celebrations. Now let me pray for us and then Jan's going to play softly for a little bit while we pray. And then Matt will lead us in our closing hymn. Would you bow with me? Father, please move us now to pray as we ought to. Stir through your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. If you want someone to come forward and pray at the altar, move them to do so. If you want people to pray right where they sit, move them to do so. If there's people who need to pray together, move them to do so. Lord, let this be the time where you remove everything that would stand between us and true worship and spirit and truth of Jesus Christ, the Christ of the cross, this Easter. Let us not get swept up into a cultural holiday with remaining misunderstandings of who he is, but let us receive the full benefits of being followers of the Christ of the cross.